Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. Let's start reading in verse number uh, 27. Philippians 1.27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father God, we are so thankful for your word Thank you, Lord, that this is indeed your word. It's not the invention of men. It's not the invention of the church. It's your word. God breathed, holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, perfect. Our roadmap for life. Our only guide for our faith and practice. And so help us today as we look at it once again. I pray you'd speak to us. I pray you'd speak to me. I thank you for how you've spoken to me as I've studied, and I pray now, Lord, that uh, you'll use that time. I pray the Holy Spirit would fill me and help me to say those things I should and nothing more, and, and uh, I, I pray you the Holy Spirit would get hold of all of us who are listening, that we might hear just exactly what you want heard today. Help us, Father, to be one. Help us, Lord, to have one mind. Help us, Father, to have unity. For, Lord, that's what we see here. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this section, Paul does indeed begin talking about a secondary theme. We've mentioned that the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. We've seen that in every message up to this point, joy. But now he's telling them that one of the major ways that they can bring him joy, and no doubt experience joy themselves, uh, he mentions it in verse number 2, is by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Chapter 2, verse 2. Unity, one mind, the single mind, is a thought that the Apostle Paul is going to continue to hammer on now throughout the remainder of this letter. 
Uh, He's going to continue to talk about joy. Joy is still going to be the primary theme, but here is a secondary one. Some have suggested that the the reason that he kind of hits on this a lot in this letter is because there was a problem with it in Philippi. I think I think we mentioned in the introduction to, to the uh, letter to the Philippians that uh, there's not a whole lot of problems in Philippi. He doesn't really address a lot of bad issues here, but there are some who believe that this might have been at least a little bit of a problem in Philippi. If you look over at uh, chapter four and verse number two, you see he says, "I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord." There were apparently two women there who uh, were having some issues with this. And so maybe there was more than that. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it was an issue. But, but, but whether the, this, this unity was really problematic in the church of Philippi or whether they're just illustrative of the church as a whole, the fact is this thought, this, the importance of unity, of like-mindedness, of, of the single mind, a single purpose, a single love, a single mind that Paul stressed here, it applies to us all. We all need it. How we need it. How. We need unity in the church of Jesus Christ. How we need the single mind. Well, Paul describes it here, uh, and, and, and I want to divide his, his thinking in, in, in three different sections. First of all, uh, it, the description. He, he's the single mind described. I want to look at that first. But then he goes on and he talks about the single mind encouraged. And then he talks about the single mind in action. We're going to see those three things. There, there's actually a fourth argument, which we're going to save for next week, because it's just too important to gloss over. We have to spend some time on it. And that's the single mind exemplified by Christ. That's the last part that we read, which we'll save for next week. But let's look at those first three points now. Let's notice, first of all, the single mind described. His first statement here sets the tone for the entire section. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally what he's saying there is, be good citizens of heaven. Doesn't necessarily look like that there, but that's the literal meaning of that phrase. In our New King James, it's translated as, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It is actually a word that refers to citizenship, and it would have meant an awful lot to the Philippians. Remember what I said about Philippi? Philippi was a colony of Rome. The citizens or the people who lived in Philippi were automatically granted citizenship in Rome, and this was a very big thing to them. They were very proud of that status. And so this would have been a word that meant something very specific to them. And, and Paul was saying here, he was reminding them that their citizenship, even though they were really proud of that, proud of their citizenship in Rome, their real citizenship was in heaven. And that's the way they needed to live. Live like citizens of heaven. Depending on what translation you're holding, it might say something like that. It's a good reminder to us in the United States of America, isn't it? I'm as patriotic as anybody, but we need to remember where our citizenship is. We need to remember where our allegiance really lies. It's with the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. The gospel song says it well, doesn't it? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We need to remember that. Paul made this same point to the Ephesian believers. He said, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Ephesians 2.19. And he's going to stress it even more later on in this book. When we get over to chapter 3, you can flip there if you want. Chapter 3 and verse number 20, he's going to say very plainly, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So getting that straight, getting our allegiance straight, 
in our mind, determining that we will first and foremost live as citizens of heaven. I think Paul is saying here is the very first step in developing this single mind, this unity of, of mind and thought. He says some things about it. He said that living like that is going to be seen in a couple of ways. First of all, it's going to be seen by our standing fast in one spirit. Standing fast in one spirit. Christians stand together. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are not to be divided. We are to stand together. We are to stand fast. We are to be one. He also says that such living, living as citizens of heaven, is going to be seen in our striving together for the gospel. There's another phrase that he uses. We're striving together for the gospel. Now, I see a couple things in there when I think about that particular phrase. I think striving together for the faith of the gospel speaks of something. It speaks of aggression. It speaks of fighting. Now, we're pretty good at fighting in our churches. Not necessarily here. I don't think we have too much trouble with that here, but, you know, churches are pretty pretty good at fighting amongst themselves. But too often the reasons for our infighting are trivial and nonsensical and ridiculous. Paul's not talking about that here. He's saying that we ought to stand and fight for the gospel and for its advance. That's something worth fighting for. Jude, in his short letter, which is the next to the last book in your, in your New Testament, he wrote this. He said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So striving for the faith of the gospel speaks of aggression. It speaks of fighting. It speaks of standing up and fighting for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth thereof. It also speaks of something else. It speaks of advancement. Striving for the faith of the gospel speaks of taking it to the enemy. Advancing for the cause of Christ. Taking it to the world. I always like to quote, God's words to Moses. I quote it a lot here because I think it's a key thought to our little church. The children of Israel, if you will remember, were encamped next to the Dead Sea and they were watching in horror as the Egyptian army was advancing toward them and the gap was closing. And even Moses cried out to the Lord. And uh, I love what God said. The Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. I've just always felt that's a key thought, a key phrase for our church. It's a key uh, thing in my mind and in my ministry here at this place. Go forward. We ought to be advancing the gospel. We ought to be taking it to our dying world. We ought to be doing it together, arms linked, standing and striving and advancing as one. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. One fellow by the name of E. Stanley Jones wrote this. He said, the early Christians did not say in dismay, Look what the world has come to. But in delight, look what has come to the world. They saw not merely the ruin, but the resources for the reconstruction of that ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did much more abound. On that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve and fatalism to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match, that something new had come into the world. That not only here and there, but on a wide scale, men could attain to that hitherto impossible thing, goodness. And they took that belief to the world. They advanced it aggressively. 
Paul said, if we're going to live as citizens of heaven, it's going to be seen in those things. It's going to be seen in our standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. Of course, there's a cost for that, isn't there? A cost associated with living that way, and he mentions that in verses 28 through 30. Persecution always comes to those who stand for Christ and to those who advance the gospel of Christ. Paul doesn't shy away in these verses from pointing out to the Philippians that what he was going through, it wasn't unique to him. And they could just expect that it might very well be something they would have to face. There is a cost to serving Jesus. And oftentimes we wonder, don't we, don't we sometimes wonder why God allows persecution? As we see the horrible things that are going on in our world, I mean, more people have been martyred in just the last few years than have been martyred in all the previous history of Christianity. And we wonder, why? Why? And I think Paul gives us an absolutely wonderful answer to that here. When the Christian bears up under such a trial, when the Christian faces such persecution, it is evidence of their salvation. That's what verse 28 says. And it is also evidence of the persecutor's lack of salvation. Evidence. Fascinating thought. I don't think I'll ever forget, and probably you won't either, the images of those men in their orange prison attire. You remember the story not very long ago when, I don't remember if it was al-Qaeda or ISIS or who it was, marched this group of prisoners, Christians, down to the seashore in their prison attire to behead them before the entire world. You perhaps remember that. And and, And the thing that I always remember about that it was, you know, it was broadcast all over media, all over the world. Not the actual execution, but the moments leading up to it. The thing I always remember to that is the calmness of the men. I always remember them kneeling there very calmly in front of their knife-wielding executioners. I remember the camera focusing in on one whose lips were just moving very, very quietly, and no doubt he was praying. He didn't see any shaking. He didn't see anything. God obviously gave them some grace to deal with that. And then they went out into eternity at the hand of their persecutors. And I marveled then, and I marveled now, at, at that testimony. One man wrote, he said, It is not possible for a Christian to stand firm under persecution and for the world to dismiss it as nothing. It is evidence of a supernatural power. Consequently, it is a token of salvation to the Christian and of destruction to those who will not believe. Living as citizens of heaven. Letting your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's seen when we stand fast in one spirit. It's seen when we strive together for the faith of the gospel. And it's seen when our salvation is made evident to the world. That's the single mind described. Paul goes on. He talks about something else here. He talks about the single mind encouraged, starting in chapter 2. Here in chapter 2, in verse number 1, he gives... Four reasons why we should stand fast in the Spirit, and in one spirit, and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Those four reasons are, number one, the encouragement of Christ. Consolation, I believe it says in the New King James, it means encouragement. The encouragement of Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and mercy. Four things, four reasons. Christ's encouragement is the first one. Christ. He certainly encouraged us to have The single mind, didn't he? I mean, his example and teaching are filled with it. Unity. 
Not only did he teach it, not only did he demonstrate it, he prayed for it, for all of his disciples, and he prayed for it for all of us who would believe through their ministry. Listen to what he prayed in John chapter 17. He said that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Paul said Christ's encouragement toward unity is the first incentive to our living in unity and having that single mind. He also wrote that our love for one another ought to be an incentive to unity. After all, Christians loving one another was and is one of the greatest evidences of our faith. We are to love each other. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We sing that old gospel song sometimes. I think it might even be a Bible verse in here somewhere. They'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, they'll know we are Christians by our love. If we truly love each other, if we truly love one another, we're going to strive for unity as a result, aren't we? We're going to try to get along. A husband who loves his wife is going to strive for unity with her because he loves her for no other reason. A wife who loves her husband is going to strive to get along and have unity with her husband for no other reason than the fact that she loves him. Christians are to love one another. And in so loving work toward unity. Paul gives a third reason here why we should stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this has to do with the fellowship of the spirit. The fellowship of the spirit. You know, from time to time, I think it's a good exercise to kind of just sit back and remind ourselves what happened when we got saved. You ever do that? Just sit back and kind of enumerate all the things that took place. When you got saved. Let me just mention a couple of them. Number one, you were forgiven of every sin. Every sin. Every evil thought, every nasty word, every rotten activity. Every sin. The ones you've already committed, the ones you're going to commit someday, the ones you're thinking about committing right now. Every sin forgiven. You were not only forgiven, you were cleansed of all those sins. You were made whole. Washed white as snow. Clean. You were justified in the mind of God. That, little, that word literally means that you were made just as if you had never sinned. It's a legal term, in the mind of God. Now when he sees you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees you as sinless because you have been justified. You were sanctified. That word means you were made holy in the eyes of God. You were adopted into the family of God. I love that one. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of a family, the greatest family that has ever been. You were given eternal life. Not eternal life that someday you could look forward to, but eternal life that began the very moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You began a a wonderful journey that's never going to end, eternal life. You were given a new citizenship in heaven, a new address. I don't care what kind of a house you have down here. you got a much better one up there. And if you're living in one that you're not real happy with down here, you got something to look forward to up there. You were given a new address, and you were immediately and forever indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. There's many things that took place when you got saved, but it's a, it's a good one. It's worth thinking about. It's wonderful to contemplate. But the last one I mentioned in that list is the one that I think Paul is appealing to here as a reason for our unity for the single mind. We are all indwelt by the Spirit of God, all of us. When we trusted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence within us. The same Holy Spirit took up residence in each one of us. 
Paul wrote about this same thing in his letter to the Ephesians. He said, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The same Holy Spirit indwells us all. The same. And the Holy Spirit that indwells us is not divided. If we are not in submission to the Spirit, we will not be, uh, if we are in submission to the Spirit, I'm sorry, we will not be divided as believers. Where division exists is because we're not in submission to the Spirit. We're ignoring the Spirit. The last reason he gave why we should stand fast in one Spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel is affection and mercy. Affection and mercy. We have received both from God. He loves us. Loved us and loved us. He showed mercy and shows mercy. And we ought therefore to do the same to our brothers and sisters. We ought to draw near to them rather than dividing from them. The love and mercy shown us by God ought to lead us to have love and mercy toward others. So Paul's saying here we are to be one in mind and purpose and in love. And Paul said such would bring him joy in verse number 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. He's not described the single mind. He's given us encouragements to live with that singleness of mind. Let's notice one last thing. Let's notice the single mind in action. I see that in verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. If we're going to have the single mind that Paul is describing here in these verses, it's going to show up. And it's going to show up in some very concrete ways. Basically, it's going to show up in selflessness. It's going to show up in putting others and their interests first. It's going to show up in not demanding our own way. I can't improve on this one man's words uh, that I read, and so just let me let's, let me quote them. He said, "The principle that Paul is stating here is found throughout the New Testament. The unbeliever naturally puts himself first, others second, and God last. He thinks he merits that order." The Bible teaches that we should reverse the series. God is to be first, others must be second, and we must come last. The Bible says carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some, 1 Corinthians 9. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12.10. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up, Romans 15. This is the heart of Christian conduct. Jesus gave himself for others. Followers of Christ are also to give themselves for others. Jesus says that his own would feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner, make welcome the one who is lonely. And he added, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Verse number three. 
Now, I can't help but think that Paul might have been referring back here to those who had preached the gospel from those very motives that he talked about in chapter 1. That's very possible. They were an example of the opposite of the single mind, the opposite of the unity he's talking about here. And I think maybe Paul was saying here, don't be like them. Don't strive to advance yourself. Don't think of yourself as anything special. But basically what he was talking about here is the sin of pride. He was warning us against it. He was saying when we promote our own agendas, when we demand our own way, when we think that we're all that, it is because we are proud. And we know pride is never right. It is always sin. The Bible is clear on that. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Pride produces anything and everything but the single mind. Listen to how James put it. He said, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So Paul's first word here on putting the single mind into action has to do with getting rid of the selfish mind. Kill pride. Squash conceit. Quell selfish ambition. Admit your way is not the only way. Maybe not even the right way at all. You know, lack of unity shows up in all kinds of different ways in local churches. I am so thankful that as far as I know, and maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just blind to things, I don't know, but as far as I know, we have a very united and single-minded church here, and I thank the Lord for it. But you know, unity, lack of unity, does show up in churches from time to time. In some ways, are more prevalent than others. I don't know, maybe some of these are here. Music, for example, is one area that always causes division in churches. This church ought to sing more hymns, says one person. This church sings too many hymns, says another person. We should only sing the old songs, those we know. I don't like having to learn new songs, whines another. If we're not singing songs that are only 20 years old or newer, then we're just not with it, says another. I had a faithful member of this church who is no longer here because apparently his faithfulness had a limit. But uh, he said to me one day, I'll attend your church until the day you get guitars and drums on the platform. Well, he left long before we had guitars and drums, but nonetheless, he's gone. You know, none of that is the single mind. You know what that is? It's all selfishness. It's all sin. It's all pride. It's all the sinful mentality of the toddler Christian who, if things aren't done exactly his or her way all the time, they're going to take their ball and they're going to go home. Brothers, sisters, we ought to pray for one another. Oh, I, I would ask that you would pray for me in this. That we, would, that we would have a single mind, that I would have a single mind. The fact is, it's very, very difficult in my role to not become conceited, to not become selfish in my motivations. I need your prayers. We all need to pray that we would not be that way. We need to pray for our music leader. We need to pray for Beth, our worship leader. You know, I have served in Christ's church in many different capacities. Now I've been a pastor for some years. I was an assistant pastor. I have, I have uh, taught Sunday school. I've been a deacon. I've been an elder. Uh, I've worked on uh, the administrative side of things. I've played the piano. I've, I've sung. I've, 
I've been a choir director and a member of a choir, and I have been a worship leader. And actually, up until just a couple years ago, when I hit a certain milestone, as the number of years I'd served here as pastor, I would have had to say that my years in ministry had been more in that area than in any other. Now I think I've probably been a pastor longer than that. But I can tell you from my own experience that serving in the music ministry, I saw more of this conceit and selfish ambition than anywhere else. It reminds me of the old joke. Remember the old joke? When Satan fell from heaven, where did he land? In the choir loft. That's where we live. You know, one of these days, one of these days we're going to get to heaven. You know what we're going to do there? We're going to sing, among some other things. And we're going to sing old hymns. We're also going to sing wonderful new choruses. We're going to sing worship songs. We're going to sing songs of praise. You know, we're going to sing right alongside guys like Andre Crouch. And we're also going to sing with guys like Johann Sebastian Bach. We're going to sing with King David. We're going to sing with Keith Green. We're going to sing with Bill and Gloria Gaither. We're going to sing with Casting Crowns. We're going to sing with Chris Rice. We're going to sing Southern Gospel music, bluegrass music. We're going to sing contemporary music. We're going to sing liturgical music. That one might get to me a little bit. But we're going to sing it. And we're going to sing it together. And we're going to sing it with one voice and with one mind and with one heart. What a day. Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And, of course, music is only one example. We could we could think of all kinds of examples. Here's one that we don't have much of a problem with. I don't think we have any problem with it here, but some churches do. Bible versions are another area where this rears its ugly head sometimes. Hmm. There are those who refuse to worship with anybody who uses an English translation other than their preferred translation. And uh, primarily that would be those who hold to the King James only position, but there's others who hold to other positions or other translations just the same. Conceit, selfish mind, rather than a single mind. The, the list of things we fuss over as Christians is endless and ridiculous. Churches have split over the color of their carpeting or the paint on their walls. Pastors have changed the order of the service and had people leave because the order of the service was changed. A few years back, we removed the antique pews in this and replaced them with these chairs, and we had people leave. That's ridiculous. It's nonsensical. I've told this story before, and I have to tell it again. I tell it from time to time because I don't want us to ever forget. I don't like to keep using the same illustrations all the time, but this one bears repeating. Some years ago, and I don't remember when it was, it was early on in my years here as your pastor, but... Uh, there was a, a, a guy came to this church. I think he was with the fire department somewhere. I can't remember what he was doing here. But he was here for some inspection or something. And he said to me, could I go up and look at your sanctuary? And I said, sure. He said, I've lived in this area off and on throughout my adult life, and I've always thought this was a pretty little church as I went up and down the road. I always wondered what it looked like in there. So he came in, and he stood. I remember him standing right here. We were standing here, and he was looking out over this. That's back when the pews were still here and all that. And he looked around, and he said a few things, and then he said, You know, I've only ever heard one thing about this church. And I said, What's that? This story always gets to me because... He said, All this church ever does is fight. That was our reputation. That's what people thought about us. And I tell that story again, just in hopes that we will never have that reputation again. How absurd. 
Now, I thank God that it is not now the case. I don't think it is anyway. May it never be the case again. We ought to highlight Paul's words there. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. Circle that word. Nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Paul wasn't done yet, though. He goes on. He has a couple more things to say. He says in verse 3, let each esteem others better than himself. He says in verse 4, let each look out for the interests of others. Those are some rough verses. Others before us. That's the key, or at least a key, to having the single mind. Jesus told a parable along these lines. Luke chapter 14, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter wrote, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each Look out for the interests of others. That's a key to the single mind. Now, in the next few verses, verses 5 through 11, Paul wrote of the greatest example of this that ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to turn our attention to that next week. I thought about trying to do all that today, but that is, that is one of the most important passages of Scripture in your Bible. And so I, I don't want to give it uh, less time than it deserves. So we'll look at that next week, and we'll see the single mind exemplified in Christ. And you might want to be reading those verses, verses 5 through 11, as you prepare for that. One of our most beloved old hymns describes the church with these words, Elect from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us be as one. Let us pray for the single mind, one mind, his mind. Let us pray that we would live as citizens of heaven, that we would stand fast and strive together for the gospel. Let us pray that we would squash selfish ambition in all its forms, that we would kick our conceits to the curb, and that we would put others ahead of ourselves in everything. Let us pray that we would be like-minded, have the same love, be of one accord, of one mind. Paul said such would bring him joy. And you know what I think? I think it would bring us joy, too. Father God, thank you so much for your word. pray you bless these thoughts to our hearts. Not sure, Lord, why this is making me feel so weepy here today, but I guess it's because it's serious. I guess it's because it's something that we need. Not because we see any particular problem here, but because we are not ignorant of our adversary's devices and we know how he would love to get into this church 
and love to split up our unity and love to get us at each other's throats. And so help us, Father, to think through these things. Help us, Lord, to determine in our own hearts and minds that we're going to live with a single mind. Help us, Lord, to live as citizens of that country. Help us, Lord, to do nothing because of conceit or selfish ambition. Give us that single mind, we pray. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here today who's struggling with any of these things, perhaps they need to spend some time today in prayer about it. I pray if there's anybody here today who just maybe needs to step out as we sing and come and kneel here at, this, at the front and pray. I pray they do that. Uh, Lord, I, I don't really know what else to, to say as far as an invitation today. I just pray that you would speak to our hearts. And I pray if any of this rings true, we'll do business with you today. I pray, Father, with all of my heart, with all of my soul, that this church would always have one mind. That we would be striving together for the faith of the gospel. That we would be moving forward for you. And that nothing would ever stop that, we pray. So we give this all to you. We, 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 as we sing this closing song, we pray you'd work in our hearts. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.